the start of Advent. I just thought uh, I would start it uh, here uh, and look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'll read in chapter 19, starting with verse 11 down through verse 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, one of the things that really annoys me about a lot of medieval art is uh, you see the, oftentimes you see this giant figure of Mary holding a little baby Jesus. And what this tends to do in my mind and and why so often it, it seems so annoying to me is that it tends to tame Jesus. Now, we think about his coming, uh, and we celebrate that coming every Christmas, and it's a great holiday, and I'm thankful that we have every year to to have this holiday, to have this celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, But all the pictures and all the images that come around this season tend to be of Jesus as this little baby in a manger, and certainly he was. He was born fully as a human being, just like we were born as human beings. He was like us in every way, except he did not sin. Uh, and so it's a, it's a true depiction of it. But many, many times what we want to do, and one, one of the reasons why I think Christmas becomes so popular, is that these depictions allow us to tame Jesus somewhat and recreate Jesus in our image instead of allowing Jesus to recreate us in his image. And unfortunately, many times in, in, in other churches, uh, churches like City Temple and many other churches, we tend to try to tame Jesus in other ways. Uh, one of the things that was really popular, and, and, and it's not bad to say this, by the way, so if you've ever said this, I'm not criticizing saying this, but I've heard many people say, well, Jesus is my best friend. And it's great if you feel like Jesus is your best friend. I mean, that's great. He is your friend. Uh, You know, he loves us. He's revealed himself to us. He's called us friends. But he's more than a friend. He's more than a friend. Uh, Or Jesus is just blessing my life. You know, that's great. Jesus does bless our lives. But he's more than the blesser uh, of our lives. He goes beyond that, beyond that kind of notion. Or one of the ones that really kind of irks me a bit, I must admit, anymore, and it's one that I used to say all the time, 
Jesus is my personal Savior. Jesus is my personal Savior. Almost like, well, you know, Jesus is, is kind of, you know, here right beside me in a little bit of box. He's kind of saving me there. Uh, but we tame Him when we talk like that. Jesus is the Savior, and He's my Savior, but it's not like He's my personal Savior, if you get what I mean. Like, He's my personal concierge that if I'm going to go shopping, you know, He's going to come alongside and, and go shopping along with me. Jesus is more than all of these things, even though many of these things are true. Jesus transcends all of these things, and we need to have in our minds a real understanding of the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. We need to understand who He is and get a picture of Jesus in the reality that He's in right now that comes out of the Scriptures so that we can be careful not to create a Jesus of our imagination. Because frankly, a lot of people in the world today, a lot of Christians, create a Jesus in their minds that has very little to do with the Jesus of the Bible. And so we need to get a hold of that biblical revela uh, revelation of who Jesus is. And, uh, and the revelation of John is one of the best places to do that. And these few verses that we read today are so full of meaning and so full of revelation of the glory of Jesus that as we go into this time of Advent, I thought it was important that we look at this revelation of the glory of Jesus and seek to understand who Jesus really is, not only for us as His followers, but also for the whole world, even those who don't follow Him. One day, as Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what do we see here in Revelation? Let's just look through these verses here and see what John saw. John says, Then I saw heaven opened. Now the idea here is slightly different. Earlier on in Revelation, it's a, like you, you pull back a, a shade and you get a glimpse into heaven. Uh, this concept, when he says, I saw heaven open, he's seeing the heavens ripped open. It's almost violently exposing the heavenly reality. And the heavenly reality is what is really real, according to John in the book of Revelation. Now, of course, I'm not denying the reality of the earth, but the heavenly reality is the enduring reality. The heavenly reality is what is really real, what it really has substance. And so John sees the heavens open, ripped open, and behold, a white horse. The white horse is a sign of victory. John is declaring here, what he's seeing here is a declaration that Jesus Christ, who's going to be riding on this white horse, is the one who is the victor. And we need to understand this. And we need to know this and embrace this. Too often, 
we feel like we're caught up in a war, war of two equal and opposite opposing forces. Like on the one side you got Satan, on the other side you got God, and somehow God's struggling against Satan, but we believe that maybe God one day will get the victory. That is not a biblical picture. The biblical picture is that Jesus is the victor. He has the victory. He comes riding on a white horse, meaning the victory is assured. It is not something he's striving for. It's something he already has. So here he comes riding on a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful. He will do everything he's promised to do. He will achieve everything he sets out to achieve. He is, he is utterly faithful. He is full of faith. And Jesus is the truth. We looked at this a few weeks ago in our, in our other series on the kingdom of God. Jesus in himself is true. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the very representation of truth. There is no truth that is not ultimately connected to Jesus in some way because through Jesus, the whole universe was created. All of it is in relation to Him. And so here is the rider on the white horse and He is faithful and He is true and in righteousness, He judges and makes war. I get angry a lot here in London. You know, there, there are times, you know, when I'm driving, like uh, I wouldn't mind if, if like one of those James Bond things would come out of my car like a little rocket and blow up the Prius in front of me. I hope none of you drive a Prius. I, I have a thing about Priuses in London. You know, I just want to blow them all up. You know, that's just... just uh, but you know what? If I blew up a Prius, that wouldn't be righteous. You get that? But it's not, I mean, that's kind of the silly stuff. But, you know, so often we get angry. So often we want things to change and we get angry about what's going on and we want to try to fix it. But you know what? Our anger is never righteous. James says this. He says, the anger of man never achieves the righteousness of God. Our anger is never righteous. If we want to make war, if I wanted to make war on the Priuses of this world, it would not be righteous. But Jesus not only is faithful and true, Jesus in righteousness, in perfect righteousness, He is the one who makes an evaluation and He is the one who makes war. And I'm going to come back to this whole issue of war because we struggle with this, right? We struggle with the idea that our God in some way is a God of war. But we need to understand the reason why we struggle is because from our perspective, we're never righteous. From our perspective, when we try to make things right, we tend to make things wrong. Because we're fallen, we're broken human beings who've been redeemed by Jesus. Yeah, we're saints, we're holy ones, but we're also messed up. Jesus is not. So he comes, he's faithful, 
He is true. And everything He does, He does in perfect righteousness. In right relationship with the Father, in right relationship with the planet, in right relationship with us, in right relationship with sinners, Jesus always acts out of perfect righteousness. So He's faithful, He's true, and in perfect righteousness, He makes judgments and He makes war. And as I said, we'll come back to that. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Jesus sees everything. You know, God doesn't evaluate from outward appearances. God looks on the heart. Jesus doesn't evaluate you based on your outward appearances. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you've done. He sees you. And His eyes are like flames of fire that pierce to the very depths of your being and that pierces the very depths of reality and every other human being in this world. He sees it perfectly. He sees it totally. And He acts accordingly. Thank God we're redeemed in Jesus Christ. Thank God that we're redeemed. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. Now the many diadems, this means He's wearing the the crowns of all the kingdoms. It's not just one or ten or twelve. It's many, many diadems. Every crown, every rulership belongs to Jesus. Jesus not only knows everything, Jesus is all-powerful. He rules everything. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus that we follow. On His head are many crowns. Many, many crowns. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. Now that's kind of strange. A name written that nobody knows but Himself. What what is this all about? Do you ever remember Rumpelstiltskin, the story? Right? And, and uh, the, the girl has to, I don't even remember the story. It's, it's, you know, it's really a scary story. I think I, well, I put it out of my mind because it's like a guy who's going to steal a kid, but you've got to guess, guess his name or something like that, and he's spinning. And so she gets the name, and the name's Rumpelstiltskin, and he goes, ah, you got my name! Uh, and then she's got power, and she wins the day. Well, that folktale is actually based on what people really thought about the gods. They thought that if you could name something, you had power over what you could name. Well, we see this with kids. You know, if you have children and you name your child, you know, that, that's an act of power. You know, as a parent, you have a right to name your child. Even if they don't like the name Rodney. You know, you've got the right to name, name that name. You know, I didn't choose it. I'm stuck with it. I was given it. And it was an act of power and authority that my parents had over me. And what this is saying here is not only does Jesus see everything, not only is He ruler over everything, all-powerful, but there are no contenders for Him. There is no one who has power over Jesus. Many times, Christians will act like you know, they, they can bargain with God and say, okay, God, if I give you this tenor, will you give me a hundred? 
No, or, or God, I, 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 want to, I want to follow you, I want to serve you, but I really would like you to do this for me. If I give you my life, I want you to give me this. It doesn't work that way. We don't have that kind of control. When we become a follower of Jesus, God gives us the contract and says, okay, sign here at the bottom line. And you say, well, wait, there's nothing written on the contract. And God says, yeah, that's right. The writing will come in after you sign. (laughs) You don't have control over it. I didn't know where I would be when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, golly, 45 years ago. Had no idea I would be here. Had no idea I would go through some of the things I've gone through. I have no power over that. No person has power over Jesus. There's a name that Jesus has that no one knows because no one has control over him. No one has power over him. No one tells him what he should do. No one gives him advice. No one shows him the way. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who sees everything, who knows everything, and who is faithful, true, and acts in right righteousness this is the Jesus we follow none other this is the reality of who Jesus Christ is and it says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood now there are a lot of debate you know what is this blood Uh, I believe that this is the blood of his death on the cross It doesn't make sense that it's the blood of his enemies because he's about to engage in war. He's not engaged in the war yet. So there wouldn't be blood quite yet. You could also maybe think of it as the blood of the martyrs, which is the seed of the church. I would accept either one of those things. The important thing is that his robe here is dipped in blood. He has the robe. He has the righteousness. He is faithful and true simply because he's chosen to willingly sacrifice himself on the cross to pour out his blood. And in the, in the fifth chapter, it tells us that by his blood, he has redeemed us from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. By His blood, He has redeemed us. And that blood is the blood in which His robe is dipped. It reminds us that His victory comes not because of His great power, although He has great power. Ultimately, His victory came because He willingly embraced the cross. And through the cross, Jesus had victory. We often talk about going from glory to glory to glory, and we want to do that as Christians, and there's nothing wrong to talk about that, but you know what? The real victory in your life comes not by going from glory to glory, but it comes by going through the cross of Christ. Take up your cross, Jesus said, daily and follow me. That's the Jesus we follow. The Jesus who won victory even in the point of what seemed to be the greatest weakness. Jesus was victorious. And so His victorious robe is dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. This is God Himself. As John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus Christ. 
He is God. Fully God. Fully human. That's the reality of Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. This is another area where people debate. What are the armies of heaven? I think that this is a reference to the church. It might include the angels. I'll I'll say the angels can come on. Why do I say that? I say that because if you look up just earlier in chapter 19, you come, uh, there we go, verse 8. It was granted her, this is the bride of Christ, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the white linen, and I think we are the armies of heaven coming with Jesus, fighting with Jesus, although Jesus is the one who actually does the battle here. The armies of heaven don't fight in this battle. It's very interesting. So I think we're coming here with Jesus. Jesus is the one who's collected His bride to be with them, and He leads them forth. He is in charge of all the armies of heaven. He's in charge of all the angelic hosts. He's in charge of everything. And from His mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus doesn't fight the battle with conventional weapons. Jesus doesn't fight the battle. He doesn't create tanks. Jesus fights the battle simply by the words of His mouth. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. And so Jesus, simply by speaking, brings forth the victory. Jesus simply by speaking overcomes the nations. Jesus simply by speaking, by what comes out of His mouth, He brings the victory for Him and His people. And He rules them. This, the imagery is so powerful here because the word rule here is the word shepherd. He shepherds them with a rod of iron. It's so easy to see this as Jesus coming down in just this great anger and wrath and fury and speaking and making war and, and just obliterating everything. But that's not His purpose here. His purpose here is not to do harm. It's not to get vengeance, although there will be vengeance. His purpose here is to shepherd humanity as the perfect shepherd. And the rod of iron means that every enemy of human beings is destroyed by the shepherding activity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is not challenged or threatened by anyone. He is the great shepherd who shepherds with this rod of iron even as the two-edged sword comes forth from his mouth to make war on the nations. And then here's the tough verse. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The idea of treading the winepress, you know, that red grape wine that comes out 
looks like blood. That image is an image of battle and an image of victory. And here he's, he is treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You say, well, I thought God was loving. You know, I, I thought God loved everybody. I thought God wanted to bring about love. He does. And that's why you have the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. God's wrath is directed toward everything that hinders love. God's wrath will be poured out against everything that hinders love. Everyone who opposes God, they're opposing God's love. Everyone who refuses to follow are refusing God's love. Humanity that that just denies God and resists God and rebels against God, that humanity is a humanity that is denying, resisting, rebelling against the love of God. And if God is truly loving, He cannot allow anything that hinders His love to continue. And this is a guarantee that one day Jesus will come and will remove everything that hinders love. Do you know one day we will exist in a new heaven and a new earth that will be characterized by the perfect love of God? For we will see God. God will see us. We will dwell with God in a great city. We will be continually basking in the love of God and the only thing that we will experience is God's love. Now in order for that to happen, everything that hinders love, everything that opposes love has to be removed. And Jesus Christ will do that. In Revelation, He's coming against the the Antichrist and the Antichrist kingdoms who have been opposed to God and He's going to obliterate them entirely. But we want a God who is wrathful toward everything that hinders love. We want a God who will deal decisively with everything that hinders love. Just imagine, think of it like this. If your loved one had a cancer in their body, wouldn't you want a surgeon to cut out the cancer? If I had cancer in my body, I would want a surgeon who was wrathful toward cancer. I would want a surgeon who so viciously opposed cancer that he was absolutely, or she was absolutely determined to remove every bit of cancer from my body so that I could live as God intended me to live. The same kind of parallel here. Jesus is the Jesus who will come. He's faithful, he's true, he's righteousness. He has righteous judgments and he makes war in a righteous way, a perfectly righteous way. And the promise here is that God will only pour out, Jesus will only pour out so much wrath as, to, as necessary 
to accomplish his purposes. When we're wrathful, when we're vengeance, vengeful, we tend to go over the top with it all. But God perfectly pours out the fury of his wrath on everything that hinders love. And on his thigh and on his robe, Jesus is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other king, there is no other Lord but Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we follow. This is the Jesus revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. He's not a tame Jesus. He's not a Jesus we control. He's not a Jesus where we say, okay, Jesus, I'll give you this part of my life, but I won't give you this part of my life. He's a Jesus that deserves everything, everything that we are, because He gave everything to us in dying on the cross. And this is the Jesus that we need. This is the Jesus you need when you go to work tomorrow and the people are resisting you and your commute is miserable because you're surrounded by self-centered, pushy people. This is the Jesus you need when you turn on the TV and you hear the leaders of the different political parties debating one another and you say, God, is this the best that humanity has to offer? This is the Jesus you need when it feels like your life doesn't turn out quite the way that you wanted it to turn out. When things didn't happen the way you thought that they should happen. When things didn't happen the way you desired them to happen. This is the Jesus you need. This is the Jesus you need when we're surrounded by pain and we're surrounded by hurt and sorrow. When we're surrounded by things that hinder love. The Jesus we need is the Jesus that will say, enough is enough. I will put an end to all of this. The Jesus we need is the one who is in control, who will have the victory over all of the stuff of our lives and everything we go through. And this is the Jesus that is coming again soon. And the fundamental question that we all have to answer Will we bow before this Jesus now? Will you give him your life now? I no longer talk about committing our lives to Jesus Christ. Because if you commit your life to Jesus Christ, it doesn't necessarily mean you commit all of it. You know, so often we say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, here, you take this. And Jesus says, well, that, that's nice, but I really would rather have what you have behind your back. And it's the thing that you really don't want to give. No, the word is not commit. The word is surrender. This Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, demands our surrender. And one day, everyone will surrender to him. The question is, will you surrender to him willingly? and receive the benefits of what He's done for you on the cross, will you resist Him to the end? 
and experience the wrath of his fury because in the end you hindered love. It's time for us to commit to surrender our lives afresh and anew. It's not something you do just once. Frankly, it's something that I have to do every single day. Where I say, Jesus, here's my life. I surrender it to you. We do that today. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never done that the first time, then do it today. And to do it, you just pray. And there's no magical prayer. I don't like formulaic prayers. I think they just say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you that you have the victory. Forgive my sin and lead my life, for I surrender it to you. And a prayer like that will start you on the greatest adventure of walking with Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for the revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. King of kings and Lord of lords. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to resist all of our attempts to tame Jesus. Help us resist all of our attempts to make Jesus small. Let us have the full revelation of who Jesus Christ really is as King of kings and Lord of lords. That heavenly revelation, that heavenly glimpse of the reality of Jesus Christ not as a weak little baby in a manger, but as Almighty God, the Word of God, faithful and true. Jesus, we worship You. We honor You. And as we sing these songs, I pray that You'd give us a deeper revelation of who You really are. Amen. Amen.